Great, perfect. Hello, hi. How was your Monday? I hope that it is fabulous so far. God, I'm looking at my notes and every week they get more chaotic. Um, like my first week I had like a nice little order. It's like I'm gonna talk about this thing first. Here's my sort of individual talking points. Second week it was like, eh, here's some random things I'm gonna talk about. And this week it's just, I've got shit written up the sides. I've got on the top of the page underlined in bold with a bunch of question marks next to it. I just have written Billie Eilish. <laughs> so that's where we're at today. Today I have completed drinking my chai before entering the recording studio. So I am in the throes of caffeination currently. Welcome to Screen Snot. That's what you're listening to. This is a podcast about all of the weird shit that we look at on screens, um, pop culture focused, entertainment focused, I talk about anime, nerdy shit, TV shows, movies. I haven't really talked about video games yet. Um, I want to eventually. So I enjoy video games, but I don't really consider myself a gamer. I don't really play them very often. I go through phases where I'll play like one entire video game in one weekend and then I won't play a video game for like four months. So that's kind of where I am. I'm thinking down the line I want to have guests on who play a lot more video games than me to sort of talk about those types of things. Because if it's just me trying to talk about video games, I'm just going to be telling you about all of the memes that I've seen about Solid Snake's ass. And I mean, maybe you want to hear that. I don't know. But today, what am I going to talk about today? So last week I had this brief moment where my brain kind of blanked. And I just went, like, eh, villains horny. <laughs> so, yeah, I want to, I couldn't really articulate why I like villainy so much. And I think I want to try to do that today. Um, so I have, like I said, just this chaotic jumble of things that I want to talk about in terms of villains. And I don't even know where to start. Um, well, I think... I'm glad that this trend is sort of, at least in my opinion, it seems like there's this trend that's ending of purposefully, morally um, ambiguous heroes, like anti-heroes, usually white dudes. Um, and I haven't seen that as much. I feel like Breaking Bad was sort of the last iteration of that in a way I mean I'm not saying Walter White was a good guy because he was not um but yeah it seems like there's a lot less focus nowadays on that sort of oh this dude is um technically the good guy but he's morally corrupt that kind of stuff uh, which can be fun but when it's every single story that's being told that's not as fun um and also when they're all white guys being um, morally corrupt and that's being sort of dismissed because they are technically the hero or something, whatever. So I've been seeing in stuff more recently sort of this return to like the good versus evil overall way of looking at things, which can also be overly simplistic, but... I don't know. I just really enjoy having like a set. This is the bad guy. You know, it's the bad guy. We're going to 
read this character as the bad guy. He is not the good guy. But then you can do a lot of things with that. You can play around with it. You can sort of destabilize that trope. You can reverse things. And and I think maybe Breaking Bad was like the tipping point for the end of that sort of anti-hero tra- trope. Maybe because that story was so um, sort of tuned into like where is the sort of breaking point between protagonist and antagonist like at the beginning of Breaking Bad you're like yes Walter White is the protagonist of the show at the end of the show you're like uh Walter White's the bad guy he's an antagonist so I think that the fact that yes even though there's a lot of moral ambiguity in that show the fact that there's a clear trajectory um this sort of tragic arc of the good guy becoming the villain in his own story is almost undermines the anti-hero trope a little bit because the show is sort of arguing he's not an anti-hero he is the bad guy um i was thinking about the moment i was trying to figure out the moment that that switch happened for me you know did, did that switch happen gradually or was there anything that made me consciously realize okay no this guy is not redeemable and i haven't seen the show since it aired so that's like what three four years now um but i think the moment for me and spoilers if you haven't seen it yet um, i think the moment for me was when he lets jesse's girlfriend die um that scene was so disturbing to me it was I mean there's a lot of that show that is disturbing but that was one of the scenes where after I was done watching it I had to like not watch a few episodes for a few days like I had to take a break from the show um because it was so just gruesome and visceral um and like good job Brian Cranston for being that kind of actor yeah I think that was the moment for me where everything became unforgivable. Um, Yeah, so I think Breaking Bad is the most recent best um, sort of deconstruction of good versus bad, of what villainy is, what creates a villain kind of. So I guess that is a good place to start. Um, But... I want to, so I have this list that I wrote down of like, I tried to come up with some ideas of like, what makes a good villain, not good as in like morally good, but like what makes a villain compelling? Um, And I guess I'll just try to go through each of those and like explain why I think that that makes for a compelling villain. Um, The first one is their motivation so not just that they have a motivation but that their motivation is understandable so for example you have one of my favorite villains of all time who I guess isn't well I'll get into that later but one of my favorite villains of all time is Prince Zuko from Avatar The Last Airbender Um, I mean you know what he's in it for you can understand I mean he's just a kid but you can like you can understand those motivations um and his sort of backstory is very very well done um it's all about his honor (laughs) and that ability to sort of understand where Zuko is coming from means that even 
if you hate sort of what he's doing at the same time, you can at least understand it, even if you're mad at him. Um, and yeah, understandable. There's a bunch. I mean, most, I think there's an attempt with most movies, shows, whatever, that have villains to do this nowadays. I think that most, I mean, even like, what was the most recent superhero movie I saw? Um, Shazam. Like, even that, there was an attempt to have you understand where the villain is coming from. Even that, he was still just kind of like stereotypical, all of the villain tropes in one, but... (laughs) And and this kind of bleeds through into some of the other things I have on this list. So, but yeah, the very basic, being able to understand where the villain is coming from. You know, I'm less interested in villains that are these sort of all-encompassing embodiments of evil or of, like, the chaos of existence. I mean, those can be fun. You can do fun things with them. But I think overall, I don't know if I would call them villains. Um, I don't know what I would call them. Villains to me have this sort of like human element. There's always this element of like free will in the type of villain that I'm thinking of, the type of villain that is compelling. So like something like Sauron, from Lord of the Rings. I'm like, okay, yeah, that guy's evil as fuck, but at least in the movie, I don't really understand what his motivation is other than be Sauron. <laughs> and like the the White Walkers in Game of Thrones. I mean, there is a very distinct possibility that we will get some sort of motivation from them maybe even on Sunday and maybe everything that I'm saying right now will be null and void by the time you listen to this but as it stands now sort of the White Walkers are more allegorical they're more they're not as human I mean they're literally not human but they're not as they're not driven by sort of human drives so having that um it makes them, I don't know, it makes it a good sense of, like, background tension. But now that it's sort of coming to a head, I do think that the political intrigue is more fun to watch in Game of Thrones. Like, yes, this battle is going to be devastating and wild and all of everything. But, and I'm going to have a nervous breakdown. <laughs> oh, here, here's a chance for me to embarrass myself because... I have a theory about what's going to happen. And so by the time you listen to this, it will have already happened or not not happened, most likely. But um, so in episode two, there's they say like 15 times they're like, oh, you'll be safe down in the crypt. The crypt is the safe place. The crypt is where everyone will go to be safe. The crypt is where everyone will be protected. Um, Yeah, I have a feeling that like. The White Walkers are just going to, like, tunnel underground and turn everyone down there into White Walkers. And they're all going to get fucked. And, yeah, that's my theory. Um, Tyrion is down there. I think he's going to be down there. I think in the preview I saw Varys is down there. Um, 
So can you imagine those two power players as White Walkers? I mean, it will be kind of sad if Tyrion turns into a White Walker, but at this point, I just kind of want things to get as wild as possible. I'm not emotionally connected to any particular ending. I know that if it ends in a way I don't like, I just go and read or write some fan fiction and everything will be fine. So honestly, Benioff and Weiss or whatever your names are, please just fuck everything up. Please just make it as wild as humanly possible so that everyone on the everyone on the internet is screaming and yelling and it's a wonderful fun chaotic time. What was I talking about? Oh, I was talking about white walkers and how they're boring. <laughs> Which uh, that's just I'll end it there. Um, so my first thing for what makes a villain compelling was having an understandable motivation. My second thing is what I'm calling the oh god factor. Um, a villain is not a good villain until they have done something that makes you go, oh god. <laughs> um, the so I'm just going to talk about some of my favorite villains in recent memory have been the villains in the Netflix Marvel TV shows. Those villains have been so well constructed and crafted and so well acted and much better, in my opinion, overall than the movie villains have been. I think maybe Loki towards the beginning of first Avengers phase was maybe a high point for me. And then it kind of dropped off after that. But yeah, these Marvel villains from Netflix, um, you've got so the oh god moment for kingpin was in the first season when he smashes that guy's head in with the car um my oh god moment for jigsaw in the punisher was i don't remember the chick's name but right after he um oh god right after he like kills he like is, he's basically playing both sides He's really creepy and manipulative and, oh, Jigsaw gives me the creeps um, in that TV show. But he is basically, he's just killed the person that he's dating's partner, like her, I'm pretty sure she's a police officer, her like police partner or whatever. Um, And then at the very end of the episode, you see like, but she doesn't know it was him. And at the very end of the episode, you like see him like bathing her and comforting her and that was my like oh god moment like I think I literally yelled at the tv I was like you can't do that you're not allowed to do that I was so upset (laughs) I was so upset um because it just made my skin crawl and like that feeling it's almost like the same feeling as going to a horror movie kind of um in like a tiny small dose it's like if I don't have that feeling, if that if that villain isn't doing something that sort of makes me go, oh, my God, oh, shit, they just did that, then, like, I'm not – it's not going to be a top villain in my books. Um, Kilgrave, similarly. So I don't remember a specific moment where I was like, oh, God, with Kilgrave. It was probably just his entire existence, if I'm being totally honest. Even The Punisher, I know that – So I've only seen the first season of The Punisher on Netflix. I'm kind of like a season behind in all of the 
Netflix Marvel shows, but in the first season at least, I don't know how this opinion will sound, but I kind of feel like The Punisher, at least the first season, was an attempt to like talk to or draw in or be in conversation explicitly with more conservative viewers. And I think that The Punisher is a good... Oh, God. I I feel like The Punisher is like a good hero for them. I don't know how this is sounding. But to me, Punisher is a villain. Like, I'm sorry. I'm not here for you taking out your anger violently with a ton of guns and sort of processing your emotions about your fridged wife through killing a ton of people. Like, I'm not here for that. There's a lot of interesting stuff also, though, that's going on with that idea of toxic, violent masculinity. So, yeah, I wrote this, like, I never actually published it because I could never fully organize my thoughts on it, but I have this, like, unfinished blog post about my experience watching the first season of The Punisher, and I I watched it, so I don't really binge-watch things. I think I've talked about this previously, but I have trouble binge-watching things, so if I am binge-watching something, then, like, it's extremely compelling to me in some way, and I watched all of The Punisher in two days, so it was very evocative for me in a few ways. I think so. I'm the child of a libertarian. My dad is a libertarian. My dad is also a veteran um, from the Navy. So the fact that this season is revolving around um, a bunch of veterans sort of in this support group trying to readjust to civilian life after being in various forms of war on the front line of duty was very meaningful for me. Um, And I thought that there were a lot of great examples of men sort of bonding and being emotional in different ways with each other, Um, sort of within the support group. And then you also have the relationship between Frank and Micro, who they almost end up having like a weird, fun, like, roommate dynamic by the end of the season, which was really fun to me. So I can kind of, I can get behind what The Punisher was trying to do, and I really, really enjoyed it, but I don't feel like, I don't know, he, Frank Castle is not the good guy in that show. I don't know if there is a good guy in that show. I mean, even Micro, even though he's funny, he's, like, doing this weird surveillance of his wife who thinks he's dead and it's extremely creepy and yeah I will I don't know if there are any good guys in that maybe um the chick what's the cute chick's name um the blonde one the Deborah Ann Wall's character she's oh I wonder if it started yet she's um doing like a D&D show that I really want to watch I was like you playing D&D is not making my crush on you go away at all, Deborah. <laughs> yeah, I need to look that up and see if that has started yet. So first two, just to review, first two things, what makes a villain compelling? Motivation, understandable motivation, the oh God factor. 
Third thing, and this relates back to an understandable motivation, for me, a really compelling villain always has an extremely juicy relationship with the hero or the protagonist. Um, there's, I mean, a lot of the stuff I just mentioned from Marvel, so like Jigsaw, Billy, and Frank's relationship. Um, usually the juicy relationship is revealed later on for like maximum emotional impact, but it doesn't have to be. I mean, the the prime example of this is Darth Vader, right? You know, I am your father. Um, but there's also... The trope that I really like, that's one of my favorite villain tropes of childhood friends becoming enemies. So there's usually, and usually it's a way to explore the sort of moral dimension or ethical dimension of sort of whatever good versus evil means in this world or in this situation. The most recent example I can think of in something that I've seen is She-Ra, the princesses of power, Catra and Adora. They grow up together and they're being sort of raised by the Horde to basically take over the world. But they think they're the good guys. You know, they're sort of raised to think that that's normal and that they're helping people by doing that. But eventually Adora sort of realizes, oh... They're the bad guys. And Catra is like, fuck you. She's a cat, so I'm allowed to hiss. <laughs> but there's, I, I really like this trope for what it is able to do with sort of emotional bonds on top of, you know, what is your duty? What is your responsibility? What is right? But I also really like that, it is imbued with so much sexual tension, always, always. I mean, Catradora is a ship. I mean, it doesn't have to be sexual tension, like just effective tension in a way because these are people that care about each other, but they're being put at odds because of what they believe in. And I love that so much. <laughs> it is a great, a great villain trope. So this... Yeah, juicy relationship with the hero protagonist. Maybe they were childhood friends. Maybe they're related in some way. Maybe maybe there's a case of hidden identities or something along those lines. Another one I really liked was in Teen Titans, um, Slade and... Robin, I don't remember what their connection was, but I feel like I remember there being a connection. I remember it was Red X. That was the connection. But yeah, so some sort of bond, whether known or unknown, between the villain character and the hero character will make for a very good villain in my book. The next one is... They could be a good guy under different circumstances. So this also relates to having an understandable motivation. But I'm thinking of villains who are maybe a um, a victim of circumstance or live somewhere that will never accept them or, you know, those types of tragic backstories almost. I didn't want to say has a tragic backstory because just having a tragic backstory doesn't make you a compelling villain. It doesn't make what you're doing understandable in terms of 
what specifically might be happening. So, yeah. Instead of saying has a tragic backstory, I'm going to say could be a good guy under different circumstances. I'm thinking... And this sort of, in a way, connects to one of my other favorite villain tropes, which is the villain was right. And there's a lot of examples of this. I usually tend to the side of um, commiserating with the bad guy. But there's two examples that I feel very strongly about. The first one is the xenomorph in Alien. Um, the villain was right. I think that the alien doesn't know what the fuck is going on. And if you rewatch the first movie, you realize, like, is the alien really being predatory? Or are the people on the Nostromo just freaked out at the way that this form of life came into existence and they start trying to hunt it down and the xenomorph is trying to protect itself? So just rewatch the movie and keep that in mind and think, you know, if someone was trying to kill you, what would you do? The other one is Killmonger in Black Panther. Killmonger was right. Fight me. I think that we should destroy all systems of oppression, no matter how violently we have to do that. (laughs) I mean, I like that in the movie T'Challa and Killmonger kind of eh, didn't really come to an agreement, but I do like that you see Killmonger's perspective being legitimized sort of in the end of the movie it's being legitimized in a kind of a fucked up way through gentrification of where he grew up as a child so I don't really know how to feel about that but Killmonger was right um I always wonder you know how would the NRA feel if it was a bunch of black people and queer people standing up and being like yeah we want guns we deserve guns yeah I always wonder how they would feel about that But that's neither here nor there. Or maybe it is. So those are the one, two, three, four. Oh, there's still one more. So, yeah, could be a good guy under different circumstances. The final quality of what makes a villain compelling to me is they can get it. So if you want to craft the ultimate villain that will just totally end me, you must make them hot. You must... Make them a victim of some circumstance that sort of strayed them off of the path of becoming the good guy that they deserve to be and should be. You should give them a juicy, long-lasting childhood relationship slash friendship slash whatever with the good guy that becomes destroyed maybe by those circumstances that I was just talking about. All of this has to be understandable, has to clearly connect back to why they're doing the things they're doing now, why they're evil now, and they've got to do some fucked up shit. If you can do that, then you've got me hooked, and I will worship your villain for the rest of my life. I already talked about a couple of my favorite villain tropes, so this idea of the villain was right, and also childhood friends to enemies trope, but my absolute favorite villain trope of all time is the villain becomes a good guy in the end oh my god this warms my heart and it allows me to freely love the villain slash not villain anymore without fear of judgment so talked a little bit about Zuko obviously this happens to Zuko this is the best part of Avatar The Last Airbender this is the 
arc that I live for is when he becomes part of the gang and starts to teach Aang firebending. And he gets to go on his little field trips which he, with each of the members of the gang. And I read last week that apparently there was a planned fourth season with an Azula redemption arc, which I would have, I don't know, I didn't think Azula was as compelling of a villain until sort of you see her mental breakdown at the end of the show. So maybe a redemption arc would have been good, but I haven't read the comics. Maybe we get that in the comics. I'm not sure. I have here, no, Dracula does not fit this trope. I don't know why I wrote Dracula here. Dracula is, um, oh, does he meet all of my, my, what makes a villain compelling list? Understandable motivation, the old god factor, juicy relationship to the protagonist, if, I mean, Alucard, I guess, um, the Belmonts, eh, the vampire hunters, maybe not as much, but yes, Alucard, um, could be a good guy under different circumstances, hot holy shit castlevania's dracula is the perfect villain i don't even know what else to say except watch castlevania if you haven't i guess i don't know why i put dracula in this list of the villain becomes the good guy because that doesn't happen <laughs> i don't know what my brain is to- oh okay in parentheses i have sympathetic villain so maybe that's where i was going with that um oh another villain that fits under both the villain was right, and also the villain becomes the good guy is Scar from Full Metal Alchemist. I think he also might be a perfect villain. He's got everything going for him as well in terms of compelling villains. So Scar and Dracula are perfect villains, in case you didn't know. But yeah, Scar was right. I mean, he's a victim of, I mean, his people were murdered. He's a victim of mass genocide. He rightfully hates everyone like scar yeah and just all of the ishvalans in full monogamous to be fair i've only seen brotherhood so i don't really know what goes on with his storyline in the other iterations of the story but in my opinion scar is the true protagonist of full metal alchemist brotherhood Um, his character arc is the most satisfying And I literally sympathized with him from the get-go. Like, when he first showed up, I was like, okay, this guy is a good guy in disguise. You know, he better team up with the main guys by the end. And he does. And actually, Fullmetal Alchemist Brotherhood does this with most of its villains. You know, by the end, most of its villains are revealed to be, like, very good in their heart. Just, like, hurt or broken in some way. Um, most of the um, chimeras by the end of the show have have joined, you know, Ed and Roy and all them. Roy is a war criminal. I'm sorry. Like, he might be a badass and he might be hot. But I think if we view this show by any, through any lens of logic, Roy's a war criminal. He's, I like him as a character, so I'm not saying you're wrong for liking Roy, but, like, objectively, he's a piece of shit. Sorry. <laughs> But also, I enjoy him, so it's fine. It's okay. He gets pegged by Riza, so it's fine. Yeah, Full Metal Alchemist is very good at doing this. And, I mean, it's part of each of the seven sins, especially greed. Oh, my God. Or not greed. Um, well, okay, no. I do love greed. I love me some twonky, twonky boy. But envy. Envy is 
also a very, very, very compelling villain, especially, you know, his final scenes where you see what he really is. Oh, it's so good. Please, if you have not watched this show, please go watch it. I waited so long to watch it because I was scared off by... I'm scared off by anything that's longer than 24 episodes. So it was a feat that I, like, got through this show. And I ended up watching it in two weeks. To be fair, I was, like, very sick for one of those weeks. So literally all I did was sit in bed and watch it. But, like, it was so good. And if you haven't seen it, you're missing out. But this also leads me to something else that I I want to point out about villains, which isn't necessarily a good thing. But I think it's part of why I am drawn to villains so much is that a lot of the times they're queer-coded. Um... You've got, I mean, greed, not greed, I keep saying greed. Envy is gender fucked, for lack of a better term. Um, You've got, yeah, I mean, I guess greed is pretty queer coded, especially the first iteration of greed. There's a lot of very feminine, sort of effeminate male villains that are out there. I think the first one I ever read as more effeminate was actually not Scar from Full Metal Alchemist, but Scar from The Lion King. So Scar is very, you know, like he kind of has more of an effeminate voice. And if you've seen, uh, if you've seen Lion King 2, which I will totally understand if you haven't, but that was one of my favorite movies as a kid. I, I loved it so much. And I think it honestly might be part of why I'm so invested in like the good guy, bad guy dichotomy and breaking that dichotomy down because the Lion King 2 basically does like the Romeo and Juliet thing, but with lions. So you've got Kovu, who's the son of Scar and, oh, I forget her names. It's like Gahani or Tahani or something. Tahani's from The Good Place. <laughs> it's not Tahani. Um, but it's, it's the son of Scar and his sort of lion wife. I guess. Um, and then you've got Kiara, who's the son or the daughter of Simba and Nala. And they end up meeting and sort of falling for each other. And you've got this wonderful montage song of the bad lion sort of training Kovu to be like the heir, the heir of Scar and sort of embody this um, same role that Scar took on. And God, I got to go back and rewatch that. I was obsessed with that movie. But yeah, there's a lot of that movie does a lot to sort of break down the dichotomy of good versus evil. So I've been exposed to that since I was like five years old. So I'm very, very aware of this sort of way that that duality can be played with. And I really enjoy it. Um, But I was talking about queer coded villains. Um, And I think part of the reason why this happens is you need... And this is also part of the reason why I think villains a lot of the times look cooler than the good guys. Because you need visual codes. You need some way to visually represent the fact that this character is being deviant in some way, right? And it's really, really problematic that breaking established gender norms is a common an accepted way of doing that with villains. Um, but it is. It. is. I'm actually in My Hero Academia. You know, I'm reading the manga right now. And I guess this is a slight spoiler for anyone who isn't reading the manga, but it's not super, it's not like a major plot point or anything. But like, 
I'm looking at, so the current arc in the manga right now is exploring, um, is almost deconstructing the League of Villains. So it's exploring each of the members of the League of Villains. Um, and right now they're looking at uh, Toga and there's this moment in the most recent chapter, which I guess technically hasn't even come out yet because I kind of read it. I read like fanlations or whatever. Um, but there's this moment where someone is describing sort of Toga's, the overlap between Toga's admiration of people, her attraction to people, and her literal bloodlust, and sort of describing it in the exact same way that being queer is described as something deviant. And I'm like, okay, Horikoshi, are you really queer coding the villains? I mean, we already have, this is another, I guess, manga spoiler, but we already have a trans woman villain who is the only villain so far who has been killed. I think, yeah, I'm pretty sure she's the only one that's been killed. And I think I was trying to think of like, I mean, I am super into my Hero Academia fandom. So like every single character to me is just inherently bisexual because that's just how I am. But I this morning I was sitting and I was trying to think, okay, what are some of the like good guys that are queer coded? And I mean, the only one, the obvious one is Aoyama. And there are a lot of theories that he's the traitor. And I'm really worried. I personally don't think he's the traitor. I could get into who I think the traitor is going to be, but I'll do that in a different episode. I'm really worried about like, okay, if he is, then we've just got another iteration of all these queer coded villains. But you can also look at, I don't know, this the way that Horikoshi is doing quirk society is really unique and refreshing to me because it's a society where 80% of the people have superpowers, not the other way around. Normally when we have superhero movies, it's something along the lines of like the vast minority of people are the ones who have these abilities. So they, especially with like the X-Men, they become this sort of marginalized population that needs to be controlled. But in My Hero, it's almost everyone And that does a lot of really interesting things for the way that society works and doesn't work. And I tend to read the quirk society as a unique way of looking at ability and disability. But I think you can also, you know, queer that. There's so many different, I mean, this hasn't really been explored. A lot of fan fiction explores it, but like... When you've got people with these physical quirks that they're part animal or they their body is totally different or their body doesn't work right or all of these things that are inherently different with their bodies, this has to queer the way that relationships work. Like it has to. And I'm kind of sad that that hasn't been explored. And I guess it probably won't because it's a shonen manga slash anime. So I'm just being too hopeful. But at least there's fan fiction to explore it for me. I went on a little my hero rant for a second. Um, but yeah, that show is doing really interesting things with good versus bad as well. I don't know if there has particularly been any villain for me so far that has fulfilled all of the compelling villain criteria. You have a, there's a slight chance for Shigaraki to compare or not compare to meet all of the criteria, except He's really got to start using chapstick or else I'm never going to think he's hot. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, buddy. 
but you really need to start using chapstick. That's the only way. That's the only way. There's been sort of like some hints. I mean, he's connected to Nana, who is All Might's predecessor. So, I mean, he does have that sort of potentially juicy relationship. Definitely the oh god factor. Um, another villain who you haven't met yet, well, you've briefly met if you've watched the anime, is Overhaul, who is absolutely terrifying and also really hot. Um, I don't... He doesn't fulfill all the qualities for me, though, because he doesn't really have a juicy relationship to anyone. I don't think he could be a good guy ever. He just kind of is like that. And he's one of those more like, I exist for the sake of chaos villains. Not really chaos, but he has a motivation. And it's a clear motivation, but it's not totally... I'm not totally convinced. It's not totally understandable. So, yeah, no villains so far have really met that for me. I think... We, I mean, it's a really, it's a long series, so I think we just have to keep going. A lot of the juicy stuff usually isn't revealed until later on, so we'll see what happens. I am hoping and praying and crossing my fingers for a Shigaraki redemption arc, because like I said, that's my favorite trope, and they've kind of been hinting at the possibility. I think, I think it could go one of two ways. I think that either he has a redemption arc, or Midoriya, being Midoriya, tries to pull a Deku versus Todoroki at the sports festival with Shigaraki and it does not work and everything gets fucked up and Midoriya learns a lesson from that. Oh yeah there's one more thing I want to talk about and this connects back to Overhaul as a villain in My Hero Academia. In addition to me not caring as much about sort of the overarching, the villains, I don't really think they're villains, these overarching forces of evil, kind of, that aren't as human. I also really don't like villains who are just like chaos for chaos's sake. I think that they're kind of, I just think they're dull. Um, They don't really do anything for me. I don't understand. Like I said, they they are usually the villains that lack that underlying understandable motivation. So a good example is obviously the Joker, which... I do like Heath Ledger's version, and I'm really, really excited for the um, Joaquin Phoenix iteration of the Joker. That trailer looks like it will potentially be very good because it is actually a backstory. So we're actually getting that motivation that normally the Joker is just like, oh, I'm crazy. Ha ha ha. So we're actually getting to see how the Joker becomes that, which will be very, very, I'm hoping, it looks like the it's like the first DC movie that I actually am like, wow, that looks like a good movie, like artistically in terms of craft. And I'm not saying that that actually matters very much for wanting to see a movie or enjoying a movie like I like Shazam. Um, but it looks like it could be really refreshing for the DC universe. If you've ever seen Durarara, Isaiah Orihara is another villain. I'm just like, dude, like it's not working for me. It's not compelling. Where's your tragic backstory? Why are you like this? Why do you just want to use people like chess pieces? I haven't seen the second season. I'm assuming they don't get into it in the second season, but maybe they will. But yeah, I just, I'm missing that um, human aspect to why those types of villains care so much about creating chaos and nothing else. The main thing I think I want to get across this episode is that just exploring a villain's motivations is so yummy and delicious. It's so much more delicious than experiencing or 
trying to understand the hero's motivations. And I love a good villain. And let me know what your favorite villains are, I guess. I've got, we've got a really big weekend coming up, a weekend that will have ended by the time you listen to this, but we've got Endgame, which I'm seeing tomorrow afternoon, and we've got Game of Thrones, longest continuous battle scene ever on television on Sunday. So I'm glad that I'm recording this now because I may have a nervous breakdown by the time Sunday comes around. So... See if your favorite villains line up with what I think makes a compelling villain. And basically the moral of this episode, I think, is just to be gay and do crimes. And that will make you worthy of my attention. So be gay, do crimes. I hope you have a wonderful Monday that is filled with wretchedness and debauchery and all of the other beautiful, wonderful things in our universe. Bye.